this morning, you can open it to Romans chapter 5. And if you need a Bible to follow along in our Bible study, the ushers are making their way up the aisles right now. So just let them know that you need a Bible and they will uh, pass one off to you so you can follow along with us through our study. You can also open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a little bit later on if you want to put something in the page or keep a finger there for later on. But Romans chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our Bible study this morning. The year before I was born, Billy Joel published a hit single that resonated with an entire generation, and the lyrics of his chorus are still resonating even to the present day. The words were, only the good die young. And the implication behind that phrase is essentially that if being good doesn't insulate a person's life from problems or pain, then what's the point of being good? And it's another form of the age-old question that has baffled and stumbled men from the beginning of creation. And that is, why do the righteous suffer? Or why do bad things happen to good people? I believe that the Bible gives us an answer to that question, and it's our topic of study this morning as we look at Romans chapter 5, these verses. So if you would, read with me from verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The purpose of the Apostle Paul writing the book of Romans was to paint a tapestry of the Christian faith. And as you know by now, as we've been studying through it together on Sunday mornings, the book of Romans was written by Paul with the intent of giving a very clear and explicit definition of what it is that we believe as Christians. And Romans is that. It is the most clear, the most pointed and understandable explanation of the Christian faith that exists in all of the world, the book of Romans. He begins from ground zero with the sinner. And he makes the point in chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3 that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, you are classified as a sinner before God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. That no one can come to God and claim to be acceptable to Him on their own. And he proves that point in two and a half chapters at the beginning. But then he gives us the good news that there is a way for us to be saved, not by what we've done, but by faith, by believing in what he's done 
by sending his son to the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that we can be saved, justified, forgiven, declared righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. And such an outrageous claim that Paul makes there that he, in chapter 4, reaches way back into the Old Testament to prove it. He declares that Abraham, who existed far long before Jesus even came, that he also was justified by God, not by his works, but by his faith. And so he proves his claim in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, where we find our text this morning. What Paul is doing is he is explaining to us now, what are the benefits? All right, my name is written in heaven. I've been forgiven of my sins. I've gone from foe to friend in God's status category thing. So now what? I'm going to heaven, but what about now? What do I have? What are the benefits associated with my belief in Jesus Christ? Well, he lays them out for us. He begins with, first of all, that we have peace with God. He says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the rest of being reconciled. That is, the part of man's heart that endures the greatest struggle, that everything else in life is seeking to try to settle this unsettledness that exists inside, has now been set at ease by Jesus Christ and by our faith in him. We have peace with God, praise the Lord. And then he says, not only do we have peace with God, but we also have access by grace into this this faith. In other words, we have access to God. He didn't just save us and then say, all right, see you when you get here. I hope you make it. I hope you can do all right in your journey and you can try to get help here and there along the way, but we'll see. No, 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 it's not like that. He's given us access to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at any time, in any circumstance, no matter what it might be, we have complete access to God. Not as servants with different levels of clearance, you know, like you would have if you worked for the government or something. Well, I have, you know, stage one clearance, and that gives me permission to enter the situation room. And the... No, 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 it's not like that. But he's given us access as sons and daughters. And if you have access as a son or a daughter, that means you have perfect clearance. You get into any room at any time for any reason, no matter what. And that's the access that he's given to us. And nobody has different levels of clearance. You don't have less clearance to go to God than Billy Graham or some preacher or some, someone else, you have perfect access to God all the time because you have been adopted into his family. You are a son or a daughter of the living God. Now, we read those things and it causes our hearts to rejoice. We say, peace with God. What a treasure. What a gift. Access to come boldly before the throne of grace, no matter what, no matter when, we can come to him. What a, what a joy. And we say, yes, Lord, thank you. But the third benefit that he lists there doesn't sound like much of a benefit at all. It causes our brow to furrow. And it causes us to be confused a little bit because we say, wait a minute, did he just say what I think I heard him say? We also glory in tribulations. I get it, I get it. This must be one of those times when you're going to tell us that the Greek word for glory actually means something other than what we would think. 
that the, the Greek word for glory actually means cringe. That we, we also cringe in tribulation because tribulation bringeth pain. You know, we cry. We sigh. We, you know, flinch. We run in tribulation. We drink. You know, any of those words will do. Just cross out glory and just put those words in the blank right there because that's what we do in tribulation, right? The word glory actually means to boast, to flaunt, or to rejoice. When's the last time you found yourself in a trial, in a season of pain, and you said, yes, I cannot wait to call my parents? I can't wait until my neighbors see this issue, this trial, this problem that I'm going through right now. I cannot wait to bring this thing public and everybody's going to look at my life and I'm going to boast in this. I'm going to flaunt it. This is awesome. Trouble. No. We don't like tribulation. We, we spend countless sums of money. A lot of energy to try to avoid problems and pain, right? I mean, we'll even cause ourselves pain if it means that somehow we can use it to avoid greater pain. You know, that's how much we hate pain. We don't like tribulation. We don't want troubles and sorrows. Paul, what is this? Is this propaganda? Paul, are you trying to just change our perspective on what you know is coming in our lives? We have a thing in our house. We call it mommy propaganda. And it works like this. Georgia is always trying to get us to eat healthy. And we're not, you know, we're not junk food addicts or anything. You know, we eat pretty good. But she's always pushing the envelope on the organic edge of things, you know. And and so what happens is that she'll get us on a level and we'll get comfortable with it. And then she'll seek to take us to the next level. I remember a couple of years ago, she read in a book that cattails are edible. That, you know, those things that grow by the pond, they, they look like hot dogs on a big stick, you know. And she read that the things are edible, and so if you get them at just the right time, and this is how you can tell, then you can actually eat them, and they taste like corn on the cob. They're real good. So we're out walking, and she actually goes, she sees one, she picks it, and I'm going, oh my goodness, where is my camcorder? You know, I'm, I'm fighting for the thing, you know, get this on YouTube or something. And, and, and so she takes the thing, and she does whatever you got to do to get it ready, and she starts eating it. And this is what she does. She goes, she, she goes, and then she goes, mmm. That's mommy propaganda, you see? I say to the kids, don't touch it, don't eat it, run. It doesn't taste that good, you know. That's not real. And and, and we've learned to identify it, you know. Especially with the baby. She'll eat something and she'll go, "Mm," and I'm like, that's not fair. He trusts you. You're his mom, you know. Is that what Paul's doing? Is that what this is? Is this propaganda? He knows we're going to go through stuff. He knows we're going to suffer. So he's just trying to get us to have a better attitude about it. It's a change of perspective. No, he's not. Because the truth of the matter is that for the Christian, for the child of God, the believer in Christ, problems and pain have a completely different meaning, connotation, and purpose than they do for someone who's lost in the world. That there are things that God is seeking to do in your life and my life to bless us and enrich us. And the only way that he can do those things and accomplish those things and enrich us in those ways is through pain and through trials and through trouble. 
And to not experience that pain or that trial or those troubles is to not obtain the blessing or the benefit that God designed or that he associates with those problems and with that pain. So what are they? What is it that God is seeking to do to teach us to bless us with through the pain that we suffer, through the heavy tribulations that we face? If you're taking notes this morning, you just want to write down four things for you to think through and consider that God might be doing in your life through the things that you are suffering. Now, I know for a fact that this message speaks to every person here. Because no matter who you are or where you are in life, there are issues, things that are troubling you. Some heavier than others, some different in different ways, but every one of us faces troubles. So what is God doing in our lives through the things that we are suffering? First of all, number one, and you can write it down, is that he is seeking to refine us. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3, says this. It says, The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Now, the refining pot was a tool that was used by jewelers, goldsmiths, blacksmiths, miners, that when you would find or mine a lump of precious metals, say gold or silver, that you found out in the field or that you're bringing back from the mines, the finding pot or the refining pot was used to separate the precious metals from the ore or the useless things, the rock, the iron, the less important, less precious things that are binding it all together and holding it in this massive clump of gold or silver, whatever it is that you would find. And what he would do is he would get this refining pot and he would put it over the fire and heat it to incendiary temperatures and then drop in that big lump of gold or silver ore into the pot and wait for the heat to begin to bring it to a molten state. It would break down, it would start to liquefy. And the natural process is that the heaviest, most precious metals would sink to the bottom of the cauldron. And so once he was satisfied with the layers that he was seeing and the colors he was seeing, he would just take a skimming tool and he would skim the top layer off and and pull off and just watch the color change. And he would just repeat this process until he got to a point where he was pretty sure he got all of the, you know, useless or non-precious, non-valuable stuff out. And then he would let everything cool off. Everything would go back to normal. Then... The goldsmith, the blacksmith, he would take both piles, both the refined metals and also the ore that was left over, and he would repeat the process for both substances. For the gold to purify it even further, and for the ore to separate any more smaller substance of value that got locked in, that got accidentally skimmed off, because the refiner doesn't waste anything. I mean, you guys know that even the smallest little bit of gold is of great value and worth extracting, no matter how much is in the refined pot. So he would do this over and over again until he was satisfied with the purity, the quality, and the appearance of the metal bringing out all of the value and thereby magnifying that value to its utmost degree. Now, God says in his word that that's what he does with our heart. Proverbs 17, verse 3. 
The refining pot for gold and for silver, so also the Lord tests the hearts. And here's how that works. God takes your life. He takes my life. He saves our soul. And when he takes up our life, he sees things in us that are of great value. Gifts, talents, upright ambitions. Things that were placed there by him that would glorify him. Things that would make us an expression of him because we're created in his image. Things that would bless us as we enjoy and that would bless others as we become a reflection of him. And so he sees those things that are in us, that he likes, but he also sees that in us there's a whole bunch of ore. There's a whole bunch of non-precious, useless, invaluable substance that's all intermingled with the gold or the silver that's kind of just holding it all together, but it's compromising the purity and lowering the value of those things that are precious. Things like habits, vices, you know, things like false anchors, things that we trust in other than God, things like trusting in money or trusting in people or relying upon a source that is not heavenly. Anything, really, that, you know, that, that we would have in our lives that we would say, well, this just holds me together. I, I do this or I practice that or I don't get rid of those because it holds me together. It's just, it's where my anchor is. It's where my comfort is. And so here's what God does. He turns up the heat. And we say, okay, it's getting warm in here. I see the potential for some trouble on the horizon. What's going on? And we start to sweat. We loosen the collar a little bit. And the temperature goes up more and more. The problems increase. They magnify. The troubles are, it becomes heavy. There's, it's inescapable. The walls of the cauldron are too high. There's no way out. We're looking for it, but we don't find it. And inevitably, what happens is things start to come apart. Our lives, we feel like they're coming apart. It, it, this is supposed to all stay together. No, this is, this, I know where things are. I'm comfortable like this. Why is this happening? And, and things start breaking down. What's happening is that the precious is being separated from that which has no value. The substance that brings nothing, that compromises purity. And God's intent, his desire, is that we would recognize when that begins to happen and say, you know what, I was holding on to this whatever it might be, because I thought this is what was holding me together. But here I am now, I'm in this trial, I'm experiencing this pain, and this isn't helping me. It was supposed to help me, but it's not helping me. And so then we say, you know what, let it go. And it floats to the surface. And God says, I've been waiting for that. Watch and see what I'm going to do in your life. And he skims it off the top, and we find ourselves becoming free. That's God's intent as he refines us to separate that which is invaluable in our lives from that which is pure, which is placed of him, that will bless us and bring him glory. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, God speaks this concerning his people, Israel, but it applies to you and me just the same in this point. He says, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. What's the result of the purifying process of God's refining in our lives? Is that it brings us closer to the Lord. 
is that when we call upon him, he will answer us. And when we say the Lord to the Lord, you are my God, he responds, you are my people. And that's God's intent in refining us and removing those things that are impure that we might ultimately find ourselves closer to him. Not only does he refine us, but he also allows pain in our lives for the purpose of revealing himself. That's number two if you want to write it down on your page, is that he wants to reveal himself to us. One of the studies that people love to do, whether it be in their own personal Bible study or maybe as part of a group study or a home group, is to study the names of God. The names that the Bible gives to our Father that describe to us some facet of his person, some part of his nature, something that teaches us something about who he is. And so you go through the Bible, and what you discover is this. You discover that the names of God in the Bible are not names that God has given of himself to man. But listen, they are names that man has given to God as God has revealed himself in a particular way. And here's the point. Is that you will be hard-pressed to find a time where a name of God is given by man to God where pain is not an ingredient in the process. That it's in a time of trial, of trouble, of tribulation, of difficulty, that God is revealed in a way that it changes man's understanding, broadens his conception of who God is. I think of Abraham. He was faced with the prospect of losing his only son, the promised son. The fulfillment of his purpose for living was to have a son that would ultimately become the heir and the father of many nations through the man Abraham. And it was when he was faced with the prospect of losing his son and God came through and spared his son that Abraham called on the name of the Lord and he called him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. I think of Hagar, the Egyptian bondmaid. She was cast out. She found herself in the position of being a single mother, of having a baby to take care of, but absolutely no support system underneath her or around her with any help at all to to do what it is that she had to do in raising this child. And as she wandered through the desert, weeping, thinking that she was absolutely abandoned, it says that the Lord opened her eyes and she saw a well. And she called it Behir Laheroi, which is the well of him who sees me. And in the midst of that feeling like she was abandoned, forsaken, like there was no help, that nobody cared, it was there that she realized, no, the Lord, he sees me. He's the Lord who sees me. And he's taking care of me. He hasn't abandoned me. I think of Moses, called of God, 80 years old, without any natural strength left of his own. All of his former ambition burned out of him. And now God says, I'm calling you to go back to Egypt. I want you to set my people free. And he says, uh, 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 wah, uh, and and literally, read it, Exodus chapter 3. And he says, oh, Lord, I was ready 40 years ago. Why now? What's going on? And he had a thousand questions. And he asked the Lord one. He says, what's your name that I might tell them who sent me? And the Lord responds, and he says, I am. It's interesting, isn't it, that God responded to a man that had a thousand questions and a thousand needs. That his name is I am. I am whatever you need, Moses. And I'm the answer to a thousand questions. I think of David, who was 
outcast. He was wandering through the Judean wilderness. Not sure if he would live even one more day to testify of what God had done in his life. Literally hanging in the balances. Is Saul going to kill me? Is this the day that he's going to catch me? And it was there when he was in that time of wandering, not knowing what would become of his life, that he penned the words, the Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Ra. That he is leading me. That though I feel forsaken, though I'm running for my life, though I don't know how this is going to work out, I know that he is with me. Because it's in the time of pain, in the squeeze, that God ultimately reveals himself to men. I believe that there are certain things about the Lord that we will not be able to learn in heaven. You say, wait a minute, it says in heaven that we're going to know even as we're known. That we'll see, not through a glass darkly, but we'll see face to face. That 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 time's coming. What do you mean that there's things in heaven that we're not going to be able to? That's right, there's things in heaven that you are not going to be able to learn. Because there are things that God has prescribed to reveal of himself and to allow us to experience of him on earth now that heaven won't afford to us. There won't be suffering in heaven. There's not going to be pain in heaven. There's not going to be trials, tribulation, persecutions, or any of those things that cause us to scream in our existence now. The fact of the matter is that it's in our trials, our tribulations, our struggles, that God gives us the power, the wisdom, and the presence that we need in order to get through those things. And we will not be able to get that in that way in heaven. That this time on earth is reserved for that now. And his desire is to reveal himself to his people. And he's given us a unique opportunity to learn of him things that otherwise we would never be able to learn of him. The amazing thing is that the things that we learn in the moment, and I say moment, of our suffering now. Those things stay with us for an eternity. I think of the apostles that were toiling in the boat. They thought they were done. The storm was too powerful for them. They were taking on more water than they could, you know, untake, you know. (laughs) English class, you know. And they woke up Jesus and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing here in the storm? And he said, where is your feet? And it says that he rebuked the wind and the waves and the storm ceased and there was a crystal calm and a pristine silence as they looked with jaws gaping, staring at this one who had power over the wind and the waves. And it says that they marveled and they worshipped because of this man who has power even over the elements. See, they had been with him. They had heard his teachings, seen his miracles, but there was something that happened in the storm that completely obliterated everything that they had limited him in previously and expanded their perspective. And that momentary storm worked in them an eternal understanding of God that was magnanimously larger than anything that they had thought previously. Who is this one? That is the thing that God is seeking to do in us through the things that we suffer. Suffering is the infrared light that reveals unseen facets of his glory. And without suffering, we will never see those things in that light that God would have us to see about him. So he's seeking to reveal himself to us through the pain that we experience. Number three, if you're taking notes, is that he's seeking to prepare us 
for his plan for our lives. I think that the prophet that had it harder than any other prophet or called man or woman in the Bible at any time in any age would have to be the prophet Jeremiah. The conditions of his ministry is that there was not a single convert at any time to anything that he did or said. He spent most of his time in isolation and imprisonment. He was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was beaten, and he was rejected. And there was no repentance of the nation and no visible or outward fruit from anything that he did. And he was deemed the weeping prophet. In fact, if he had a Twitter account, that's what it would be. It would be at the weeping prophet. You know, and that would be Jeremiah because he was constantly discouraged because of the lack of fruit from what it is that God had called him to do. And early on in that, while he was being, you know, prepped and trained and just getting his feet wet, really, in the ministry and experiencing such difficulty, he began to complain. And he went to the Lord and he said, Lord, I don't get it. Why is it that the wicked continue to thrive and prosper and the righteous are withering, afflicted, and persecuted? Why don't you just wipe out those people that reject you and pour out your spirit upon those that love you? This doesn't make any sense to me. Now, he was hoping that God would come back to him and that God would say, Oh, Jeremiah, just hang in there. It's going to happen. Just keep going and you're going to see that fruit. You just hold on to that promise. No, no, no. God didn't do that. God came back to Jeremiah and he said these words to him. God's response to Jeremiah's complaint, chapter 12, verse 5. He says, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if the land in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? Essentially, God said to Jeremiah, he said, Jerry, you think this is hard? Just wait. If you're having trouble keeping up with the footmen, how are you going to contend with the horses that which is to come? If here in the land of peace, this is easy, this is nothing. If here they've wearied you, then how are you going to contend when you're in the floodplain of the Jordan? When not only do you have these things happening to you from this angle, but they're also hitting you from this angle and from that angle. And you have this multitude of issues that's going on in your life. How are you going to hold up under it then? Here's the point. Is that oftentimes, the things that we're going through, the difficulties, the trials, the pain that we're feeling in our lives are purposely designed by God in order to equip us for what is yet to come in the future that we don't know about. The things that are yet to be. I think of David again. How is it that David had the faith to slay Goliath? Well, he tells us. When he was a shepherd, keeping just his father's sheep, he was able to deliver sheep out of the mouth of a lion and out of the mouth of a bear. I don't know if I would have had the faith even to do that, but David said, no, I've been entrusted with the sheep, and I'm going to do it. I, I just don't care. I'm taking on the lion, I'm taking on the bear, and he was successful against the lion and successful against the bear, and that was his credential when he went up against the uncircumcised Philistine. He said, I took out the bear, I took out the lion, and I will take out this uncircumcised Philistine who is defying the armies of the living God. See, the trial that he had experienced in the field prepared him for the battle that he would face there in the valley of Eshkelon as he would face Goliath, the Philistine champion. You say, how did David make such a great king over the tribe of Judah when he was made leader of that 
portion of God's kingdom. How did he do such a good job? How did he thrive? so? Because he learned leading 400 men in the wilderness and then 600 men. He himself had been an outcast, so he knew how to deal with and work with outcasts to raise them up and turn them into mighty men of valor. How did David become the gold standard for kings throughout the whole Bible that every king would be compared to? Were they as good as David? Here's how. It was the sum total of all that God had brought him through to prepare him for that place where he would be the king that makes the gold standard. It's true that the things that we face in this life are difficult. Some of the trials that we go through are, we would say, borderline impossible, inhumane, horrible. <laughs> we, we play the word association game, you know, with all these things. But it's true, they're hard. But let me tell you something that's even harder than the trial that you're in right now. It's getting to the position that God has ultimately designed you for and to not be prepared for it. That's hard. And so God is committed to doing his work in our lives to prepare us for the thing that he has ultimately made us for. And finally, number four, is that these problems, these trials that we face, they give to us an opportunity to reflect him. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I asked you to turn there earlier on. The Apostle Paul was an anomaly to the Christians at Corinth. He spent a great deal of time there, you know, a year and a half at least, teaching among them. And they could never quite figure him out. There was something there that when they looked at Paul, they saw this man who was weak. He didn't see too good. His speech wasn't eloquent. He stuttered when he talked, and there was fear in him. You know, there was all these things, and they noticed all of that. He didn't hide it from them and pretend that he was like this super apostle. His weakness was right there for them to see. But at the same time that they saw this weakness, this frailty, they also saw this power. They saw an effectiveness. They saw and heard a fruitfulness in his voice. They could see a passion that came out of him, a reality, a joy that didn't line up with his outward circumstances. And so he writes 2 Corinthians in part to explain that anomaly and to try to make sense of that contradiction between what they saw outwardly and what was going on inwardly. And he says here in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, "For for, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts. Now that is a big contrast right there. The God, glorious, huge, powerful, that caused light to shine out of darkness. Can you do that? I can't do that. He can. Glorious God, but he's caused this light to shine in our hearts. There's the contrast, the our, O-U-R. Glory, frailty. Power, weakness. (laughs) Authority, Nothing. Here's this great contrast, and it says that now he's taken this glory, this light, and he's caused it to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then he says, but we now have this treasure, this power, this glory, this authority in earthen vessels. The NIV says jars of clay. 
And, And that contrast is huge. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. We have problems. That's what Paul says, essentially, up to that point. We're perplexed, we're distressed, we're in despair, we're persecuted, we're forsaken. Well, not forsaken, but we carry about the death of Christ in our mortal bodies. You say, why? Why do we carry that about? He answers it, the second half of verse 10, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Did you hear that? That the life of Jesus might be manifested, unveiled, made known, presented, flaunted, boasted of in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Why? That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. In other words, it's not about me, Paul would say. It's not about how I'm feeling, or what I'm going through, or am I feeling healthy today or are my eyes working or do they like what they hear when I speak none of that mattered to Paul he says do they see Jesus and he would say to God whatever it is Lord that's going to cause them to see you in me bring it so he concludes verse 16 there he says therefore we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction Now, if you think your affliction is not light, you say, well, yeah, Paul says my light affliction. My affliction isn't light. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 and just do a side-by-side. Put your problems on one column and then, you know, get his out of there. You'll see him. He lists them for you. And you put them side-by-side and you see who's got it worse. And Paul says our light affliction, L-I-G-H-T, this is nothing. This is footman. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so what's Paul saying here? He's saying that the afflictions, the tests, and the pain that you and I experience through our lives serves the purpose of being an invitation for lost people to look into our lives and see Christ. When you go through the things that they go through, sometimes you go through things that are heavier than the things that they go through, but yet in you, as they look at you, and there's an anomaly, because outwardly they understand what you're going through, but they see something going on inwardly that they don't have, even if they don't have the problems that you have. And they would look at your life and they would say, even though I wouldn't trade anything for your circumstances, I would give everything to have what you have in the midst of those circumstances. And it's an opportunity for us to be a reflection of Christ to the world. How often do we pray? Lord, open a door for me to share with them. Lord, open a door for me to be a witness for you. Help me to evangelize, to be a light. And then a trial comes our way. 
<laughs> and we say, no, 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 Lord, not trials, evangelism, you know. And he says, I'm giving it to you. This is your chance. As Job said, when I've been tested, I will come forth as gold. So you say, as we wrap it up here, you say, okay, you've given us four things to consider, reasons why maybe I'm going through these trials. All right, he's seeking to refine me. I I get that. He's working to reveal himself to me. He wants me to know him closer. I get it, okay? He wants to prepare me for what is yet to come, yes? And he wants me to reflect him, to be a reflection of him. I get it. So, Nick, please, because this is a mixed group, could you just please tell me which one is it? What is it that he's seeking to do in my life right now through the things that I'm going through? Here's the answer. All of the above. Choice E. I've learned this about God, and maybe you have too. And that is that he never wastes moves. He's never doing just one thing at a time. He's always working from every angle, doing multiple things in us and through us that we can never figure out or number or categorize or understand. I mean, it's, what he does is huge, you know. I think of Joseph, son of Jacob, in the Old Testament. You know, the one that was sold as a slave by his brothers and brought to Egypt. And, you know, you know the story. If not, read it. It's a classic. It's probably one of the greatest stories in the Bible of how God works in a life. And I can imagine one of us talking to Joseph there in heaven and saying, hey, Joseph, you know, you went through it. I mean, you had 13, 15 years of hell, literally, when your brother sold you as a slave. You were 17 years old. What was it that God was doing in you by bringing you through all that? I mean, that was, that was hard. What, what was he doing? And, and Joseph, I can imagine he would say, well, you know, there was a lot of refining that had to happen in my life. And the Lord really refined me in that time because, honestly, I had a whole lot of trust in men. I, I remember one time I was there in the prison in Egypt and, and the butcher and the baker Two people that were close to the king. They came in and they, 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 they had direct access to the one person that could get me a pardon. And I remember I asked them, I said, hey, I interpreted your dreams. You guys see, you know that I didn't deserve to be in this situation. Would you speak to the king for me? And you know, it didn't work. I thought my connections, I thought my charisma, I thought those things were going to actually help me. But they didn't help me, and I learned from that experience that it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. And he refined that falseness right out of my life, and I was the better for it. I was so glad. But, but you know what? That's, that's not all he did. He also, in that time, that decade, those 15 years, he also revealed himself to me in such a powerful way. I learned things of him that I never would have learned any other way, but it be that I go through that pain, those years of imprisonment and false accusation. He taught me people. I could see what was going on around me, and I could interpret it in light of the kingdom of God and spiritual things. He gave me gifts and the ability to interpret dreams and to prophesy, and things would come to pass. He revealed himself. He showed me prophecy and things that were yet to come in the future. Deep things, great things, advantageous things through that time. He revealed himself in such an incredible way. But that's not all he did. He also prepared me. See, because when I came first to Egypt, I didn't even know how to say shovel in Egyptian, and they threw me a shovel. And that's where I began, but I learned as I was there, and I observed, and I saw what was going on in Potiphar's house, and it wasn't long at all before 
God exalted me and taught me and gave me an administrative ability to oversee things, he put me in charge of Potiphar's house. And then he allowed me, he even prescribed it, that I would be then falsely accused and and put into the prison. And when I got into the prison, I got to learn a whole other thing, not just the personal residential side of life, but I got to understand the governmental, bureaucratic side of things. And he gave me insight. He taught me how to operate in that environment. And little did I know that he was preparing me to one day wear the Pharaoh's ring and to be the most important, powerful man in Egypt next to the Pharaoh himself, that I would one day be the prime minister of this entire land, that not one person would lift a finger in Egypt except it be at my word. I had no idea that he was preparing me through all the things that I went through to occupy that position of glory. Couldn't believe it. But you know, there's one more thing that God did in my life in that time that stands out to me at least, is that he made me a reflection of him. Because when I stood before the Pharaoh, when my moment came and I was finally able to speak to him, the word that Pharaoh gave was not how great thou art, Joseph, but his word was, where can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God dwells? He made me a reflection of himself. That it was no longer about me, but it was about him. And he would say, Joseph, if he could tell us this morning concerning what God did through what he experienced, the heavy things, the dark things, he would say, along with Paul, I also glory in tribulations. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No comparison. You can't put your sufferings on one side of the scale and say, I hope heaven's worth it for this. Because heaven will far outweigh anything that you could experience in terms of pain on earth. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. It's been well said that God is much more concerned with our eternal state than he is with our present comfort. And take hope, Christians, because it's always true with God that he has one hand on the thermometer measuring how hot things are and the other hand on the thermostat controlling what's taking place. He is absolutely sovereign and he knows what he's doing in our lives. I know that all of us are facing heavy things right now. Dark times. Family problems. Kids gone haywire, they're off out there somewhere. Financial problems, layoffs, fear of layoffs, like increased workloads, you know, burdens. You know, we have things, mental problems, people anxious, depressed, dropping like flies. I mean, there are heavy things going on in the lives of God's people in these days. He wants you to know that he's with you. He's with you in it. And your light affliction that's for a moment, is working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Take hope, church. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that you who began a good work in us 
you're going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That from the moment you called our names and saved our souls, Lord, you saw in us what we would be and how you would glorify yourself through us. And right now, Lord, we as a church collective, we we lift up our hearts to you. We lift up our lives. We lift up our problems, our desires, our ambitions, our goals, our weaknesses, our failures, our hopes, and even our broken dreams, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would shed light on them, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us, Lord, and that we would have that patience and that patience would have its perfect work, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so I pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit that works in us who believe in you, that you would give us an extra measure of grace this morning, that you would turn our sorrow into dancing, our mourning into joy, even though the circumstance doesn't change. Help us to trust you. We lean upon you this morning, Lord, and we thank you for speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.